The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, quit searching the blueprints for the Enterprise Library and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 262 with guest David Hayden, recorded live Tuesday, July 31st, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now, bring world-class .NET and SharePoint training on-site for your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who believes life begins at 40, followed by death, which begins the day after, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard again. Yeah, we keep doing this. Again. <laughs> Again. 262 times. Well, at least for you, anyway. Thank you, guys, out there in listener land for keeping on listening and being such good fans. We just uh, we can't get over how successful this show has been. Thank you. Richard. Yes, sir. It's almost pig time. Yeah, it's almost your birthday. Yes. And after you came all this way to come to my birthday, it's only fair I go to your birthday. Yes. The pig will be roasting in the spit all day. Wow. Over a smoky bed of coals. Very nice. Yes, sir. We'll have a lot of fun, I'm sure. All right. And uh, if anybody wants to crash my party, just send me an email. Easy to do. And and I'm totally serious. <laughs> <laughs> totally serious. How about... A framework. How about a framework? Yep. There it is. That was it. There it is. Okay. Today's framework is system.reflection.assembly. Ooh. And uh, this is a great class if you're doing any kind of reflection, but especially if you want to load an assembly or create an instance of an assembly, and then from that instance, uh, get all of its info, like its properties, its classes, its interfaces, its methods, its events, all of that stuff. Um, I use the assembly class when I want to dynamically load a DLL and examine it to see if it has the interfaces I like and then instantiate it as a uh, an assembly and uh, cast it to that interface. And yet that's your basic plug-in strategy right there. So is this the coding technique for what Reflector does for us? Yeah, as a matter of fact, Reflector does that uh, as well. Reflector loads up the assembly with assembly dot uh, load from file, probably. Right. And then uh, based on that assembly, you can get all of the information just like you can with any object. You have it enumerates. The, uh, yeah. It's basically the type object. Right. Uh, get type is a member of every uh, object, and that returns a type object, which is, uh, you know, in reflection. All and the good you can stuff use, that you need to know. Yeah, exactly. And then you can use that to get all the interfaces, uh, get an array of all the names of the interfaces, get an array of all the names of the classes, and you can just... Uh, Get just cycle through them, and not only just names and strings, but of course the full information about those classes, all the metadata. Right. So um, one thing that reflection does that assembly does not do is it loads the symbols 
uh, and based on the symbols, uh, it can sort of generate source code for you. Well, it does generate source code, but if it has access to the symbols, it'll actually give you the names of the variables and things like that. Yeah, because otherwise they're just tokenized down into meaningless things. Exactly. So if it if the PDB is available, if the debugging symbols are available, it'll show you the names of the variables. But if not, then you'll see like str1, str2, that kind right. of stuff. But it can totally do all that because of the assembly class. And there you have it. So, Mr. Campbell, what are the fine folks who listen to .NET Rock saying about us this week? Hey, I actually have a bit of an... A criticism email, but I really appreciated it, actually. It was a good one. Cool. This one reads, uh, actually, the subject's great, blindly building castles in the sand. Hey, we're not above it, man. We can take it. Go ahead. Hey, Richard and Carl, I love your show. Listening to it makes me realize how much I have to learn, as well as making me gradually smarter. Yeah. I had high hopes for your sandcastle show after struggling with trying to get sandcastle working for ages. Hmm. Using Sandcastle was an exercise in making myself feel stupid. Uh Uh-oh. Wow. I've had that experience a lot with software. Every day. (laughs) (laughs) I eventually got it working by using this GUI, and he points me to a Shrinkster link at RLC. So, Shrinkster.com slash RLC. And this is a Dutch website for a, a, a free piece of software called Sandcastle GUI. Huh. And it suddenly occurs to me, we didn't really talk about this much with the Sandcastle guys, but there's no UI on Sandcastle. Yeah, that's right. There is no UI. But you remember when we asked Anand about what his, you know, the number one wish for, you know, what, what people are asking for the most in terms of features, he said ease of use. Right. Because it's hard to figure out and the documentation isn't, isn't really there. Anyway, the website Sandcastle GUI developed by a guy named Stefan Smetsters. I hope I got his name right. So we gave you the link there. It's at RLC. And uh, uh, Richard goes on to say, I'm not sure if this is the best tool available, but it worked for me. I ended up finding most of your Sandcastle show quite frustrating. It seems that there is a lot more I could be doing with Sandcastle, but I may have to wait for the documentation for myself to get smarter to actually be able to do it. Wow, that's too bad. I'd particularly like to know how to automate it as part of my build, and I'd like to fully understand the pluginable architecture so that I could add my own bits. Still, there's hope. As was said on the show, making this easier to use is their number one feature request. Right. Perhaps it'll be part of Orcus. And I think, no, it'll come later, because if you're going to be part of Orcus, you'd already be there, because they're in beta now. They're in beta now, right. In the meantime, I think a demonstration of Sandcastle would make an excellent DNR TV episode. I believe we talked to them about that, did we not? Yeah, and I think we should do it for exactly those reasons, to show those steps. And maybe, Richard, we're just going to grab some of these ideas and make sure we do them in the DNR TV. Absolutely. Anyway, keep up the good work. Richard Garside. Wow, look at that. I love how a plan comes together. <laughs> hey, we have a problem. We have a solution for that. DNR TV. We'll get those guys on and uh, go to town. Yeah, because I think I I really feel like we didn't emphasize the UI issues or lack of UI issues around Sandcastle enough. We were talking about all the good things, didn't really get into some of the troubles. And uh, Richard, you know, we also have some stuff going on with Infusion. Of course, friends of ours down in New York City, Nick Landry works for them and right. uh, very creative people. Two things going on. Of course, they're still hiring .NET Rocks listeners in New York, and that's uh, a New York tour. You go there for a year, you live in an apartment rent-free, and uh, they're also hiring in their Boston office. But we're also doing the Sleepless in New York event. Oh, right. Sleepless in New York. Yeah. This is this SharePoint contest. The SharePoint weekend. Well, not really a contest, sort of like training, but then they're going to have, they will have some, uh, you know, coding contest, I guess, but, uh, but it, it's an opportunity to rub elbows with some really cool people, including, uh, us. Yeah, we're going to be there. We're cool people, aren't we? Last time I looked. And uh, Mr. Forte is going to be there. Yeah. Mr. Sahil Malik is going to be a judge as well. Right. And uh, we we mentioned it uh, later, a little bit later in the show, and we have been mentioning it in ad spots too. But if you haven't checked it out, just uh, click on the Sleepless in New York uh, icon graphic on uh, the .NET Rocks homepage, or you can go to infusion.com slash sleeplessinny and check it out. So it's an opportunity to get some free training 
to uh, get a free trip to New York City to rub elbows with some cool people, learn all about SharePoint, and then uh, participate in a contest. And there's cool prizes, too, including like a huge PC, like the mother of all PCs, <laughs> <laughs> and some Tom Bin bags and great stuff. So very proud to be a part of that. That's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, let's bring on David. David Hayden is an independent consultant in Sarasota, Florida, offering consulting, mentoring, and development services on architecture and best practices in .NET. David's a Microsoft MVP in C Sharp, speaker, MSDN forum moderator, enterprise library community leader, and advisor to Microsoft Patterns and Practices. And if you don't believe me, just read his business card. Nice. He spends much of his time helping. It'd be hard to fit all that on a business card. That's why <laughs> that's funny. Or maybe not. I don't know. He spends much of his time helping companies and development teams leverage the proven practices and productivity benefits of enterprise library and software factories. In addition to his personal blogs at davidhayden.com and codebetter.com, David also runs pnpguidance.net. That's PNP which offers numerous articles, screencasts, sample downloads, and other resources covering best practices in .NET. Welcome, please, David Hayden. Well, thank you, guys, and uh, you know, thank you for inviting me on the show. Well, absolutely. It's good to have you. Thank you. Enterprise Library has been something that's been niggling in the back of my mind for some time now that we really needed to dig into that show. Although, uh, Software Factory is too, also a fantastic topic, and we've had Jack Greenfield on before to talk about that. Uh, and I think it's important that Enterprise Library is now at version 3, so it sounds like, as with all Microsoft products, it's grown up now. Well, I think that that's really the key, and there's a, you know, Enterprise Library 3 came out in April, and then they came out with a maintenance release in version 3.1. So it's a, it's a huge topic right now. And if you kind of look at the history of Enterprise Library, it's really the first time um, that the Enterprise Library team has had a chance to really just go nuts with it. You know, so with this new version, we've, you know, for the first time in a while, we've seen, we see a couple of really cool new application blocks that I'm, that I'm sure we're going to get into. And we see a whole bunch of uh, numerous changes to, you know, the various uh, application blocks that have always been a part of Enterprise Library. And then we've got this really, you know, cool application block software factory, which I, which I hope really takes off because, hmm. you know, the one great thing about Enterprise Library is it's always been very extensible. And people did, you know, did and could have the opportunity to create these new providers and new application blocks. But they really just haven't known how to do that or it hasn't been easy. And now with this new application block software factor, I think you're going to see this community even grow more. So there's a lot of, of excitement right now, you know, about Enterprise Library. Tell us about this uh, software factory. Uh, well, the idea is that, I mean, it's really kind of core to Enterprise Library. It's always been a provider-based, um, you know, uh, collection of reusable helper libraries. And the idea is that, for example, with each or any of the blocks, let's say the data access block, for example, there are pluggable providers that provide you, say, data access to, you know, SQL Server or Oracle or, or what have you. And there's always been an opportunity for people to add their own providers. So they could, you know, add a provider specific to DB2 or specific to MySQL. But it really, there really hasn't been any documentation there to help developers do that. And, and so, you know, you really haven't seen a lot of that in the past. But now with this application block software factory, it makes it very, very simple to create, you know, especially new providers. Because it's a guidance package just like any of the software factories that come from the patterns and practices team. And essentially it allows you to create a new library you know, for, for just your own providers. And then it walks you through this wizard interface where you can say, okay, I want to go ahead and create a new trace listener, or I want to go ahead and create a new validator for maybe the validation application block. And it automatically creates the structure for you. So basically all you need to do is just write the implementation code. And then, of course, just then when you're finished with it, you can deploy it in the bin directory, so to speak, of Enterprise Library, and then it'll automatically be picked up by the configuration tool, 
and then, you know, lo and behold, you have your own database provider, you have your own, you know, whatever that you decided to create. So it's pretty exciting. And in fact, it's, I think it's going to get even more exciting because there's a new um, community, Enterprise Library Contribution Community, that is uh, specific to people creating their own providers. And not only can you download now a release that provides a few providers, but there's also a lot of good community involvement there where people are asking questions on, you know, how do you do this and how do you do that? So it's a great resource for just finding, you know, answers to questions. Now, is this um, just for creating providers or is this software factory for creating any kind of application block? You, you can. In fact, and th- that's key. You can create any application block you want with it. And I've, I've created some of my, uh, myself. So if you have, I, in matter of fact, I create like a schema application block that allows me to do more with database schemas for like, you know, uh, discovery, like object relational mapping and things like that. But so you can use it for anything. I think, you know, the guidance you know, because it's in its 1.0 version, it needs a little bit more, you know, I want to say automation and help with that piece. With that piece. But definitely you can also use it um, to create, um, you know, application blocks, like, say, a validation application block. You're not using Enterprise Library to create providers for other things. You're saying that the Enterprise Library has the ability to use the provider model to extend the library itself. Right, and they provide, as a part of the download, when you install Enterprise Library, though, there will be, assuming you have this automation technology that's a part, you know, that's needed for software factories, this application block software factory gets installed automatically. And then you can use it to create, you know, any types of providers you want. Or just new application blocks, and it's and I tell you, if you if you're not familiar with the soft people, you know, listeners, I guess aren't familiar with the software factors factories or the automation technology. It's really really nice because it breaks it down into just very various recipes and wizards, you know, helping you with a lot of that plumbing. Like I said, most of the time, all you really have to do is just create the implementation. It creates the structure for you. Very nice. And the big thing that I'm always concerned about when when I'm getting code like this. I mean, Microsoft is basically giving away a chunk of code saying, like I said, it's from patterns and practices. Here's the right way to do this. Here's the right way to do this model view presenter. And I can take that code, but the moment I modify it, I'm off the path. Now you're going to make new versions and I'm not going to be able to use them because I made modifications to them. So I'm really interested in how am I going to be able to make these modifications without impacting the core code that's going to get updated by Microsoft. Well, I think you've seen that a lot more in the past because I think, you know, uh, you know, let's face it, patterns and practices team has a bit of a reputation of over-architecting stuff and giving you, you know, frameworks when all you really wanted was maybe a library of services. Yeah, okay? I needed something to cut and paste. That's all I needed. Yeah, well, sample. To an extent. I mean, actually, you're talking about, say, you know, the model view presenter specifically. I mean, the there are some recipes in the smart client and web client software factories that the only thing they do, they don't force you, for for one, to use the model view presenter pattern, but what they do is essentially they allow you to, like, in one click, create, you know, three classes. Because a lot of times you've got your view class, you've got an interface that's a contract to the view, and then you've got this presenter class, right? So to do that yourself, I mean, you're sitting there, you know, clicking and creating three classes all the time. Well, the 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 smart client and the web client software factories, for example, have this view presenter recipe that literally, in, in so to speak, one click, creates all three of those classes for you. Now, you can go in there and, number one, modify those classes that were created, you know, um, all you want. Okay, the other thing, though, is if you look at the the guidance packages, they're all based on this, this templating language. And so what I've done in a number of cases is you can actually go in and modify those templates to have it produce whatever code you want. So if you find that you're doing something consistently inside the presenter class, you can go down the presenter template that's a part of that, that guidance package, modify it, and then every time that presenter class gets created, it will have that change. So, you know, actually, in my opinion, the patterns and practice team is getting very good about, you know, not trying to force you into a specific model. In fact, what you're going to see in the future is that the, the software factories especially 
are, are going to, you know, give you not only a light framework if you need it and it makes sense for you, but also be very applicable in your own, in your own structures and in, in an existing application. So I think, I think you're going to see some really nice things as, as they continue to evolve these software factories and, and, and enterprise library itself where there, I think they've gotten a little bit more sensitive about, you know, being more of providing services as opposed to being a framework. So, David, uh, 3.0 of the, uh, of the, of the enterprise library. What's, what's new in 3.0? Okay. Well, we've got actually, um, a number of changes. Um, the first two biggies that most people are probably going to be excited about is that for, uh, we see two new application blocks. We've got this great validation application block. Uh, which I actually see being one of the more popular blocks to help people with those common challenges of, you know, validating things in their applications like, like business classes. In addition, we've also got this other application block, which is really going to change the way people think about using Enterprise Library and has got me thinking quite a bit. It's called the Policy Injection Application Block, and it's... Huh. And it provides this aspect-oriented programming style of development where instead of thinking of logging and caching and, and exception handling and things like that as code that you actually write, instead you actually declare that logic as either attributes on your classes or in a configuration file. So we've got these two wonderful new application blocks. In addition... Uh, because the enterprise library team just could go crazy, you know, with this with this version, they've added some really nice enhancements to say the data access application block and the logging application block, which are really, you know, at this point the two most popular blocks. They the data access block now has support for system t- system transactions, so now you can safely use transaction scope with it, for example, as well as it's got support for SQL Server Compact Edition, and it's got you know the some of the things like batch update support uh, for use with data sets. And the logging application block actually has a a really nice new uh, feature, which is a rolling flat file trace listener. This is something that has been wanted for the community for quite some time, and the enterprise library team had a chance to actually build a new trace listener in there. And then, you know, we have some, there's one of the kind of the famous things about enterprise libraries, there's a separate configuration tool that you use to manage the rich configuration um, layer that Enterprise Library provides. And before that used to be a standalone tool, but now there's actually a Visual Studio integrated editor. Okay, so now when you're doing configuration changing and doing coding, you don't have to do that switching back and forth. You actually have a built-in editor into Visual Studio. And then probably the other big one, which we just talked about, was the the application block software factory, okay? Okay. Which, again, is going to, I think, really going to uh, push the community and get the community excited about making making their own providers and application blocks. Do you find that the horizontal scroll bar is the most annoying thing when you're trying to read that impossibly long line of code? Well, maybe a 19-inch LCD monitor would help. Telerik challenges you to explore their new reporting product and have a chance to give your workstation a facelift. A 19-inch NEC monitor could be yours if you answer a few easy multiple-choice questions about Telerik reporting. Just spend a few minutes and see how easily you can generate Windows, Web, and PDF reports. Play with the drag-and-drop data binding. Experiment with Telerik's acclaimed CSS-like customization of reporting items. The reporting tool is fast and compact and very easy to deploy with a mere X copy. Even if you don't get top marks in the quiz, you can still be a winner. The modest score of seven correct answers out of 11 questions secures you a complimentary Telerik reporting developer license that you can use in your personal and professional projects. So go to Telerik.com and give it a try. It's fun. It's interesting. And it can get you a free license or a new monitor. So let's talk about some of these things in a little bit more detail. That was uh, quite a mouthful there. <laughs> the validation application block, is this a primarily an ASP.NET thing or is it UI uh, neutral? What's the it story with that? It actually is UI neutral. The, the focus of it is more on, you know, the business layer and, you know, basically your, your various... Uh, 
you know, project libraries in .NET itself. So typically what you would use it for is, say, validating whether a string on simple types, for example, where maybe you're just validating a string if it contains characters or if it's of a certain length or if it matches a certain regular expression, okay? But then you can take it further in that the validation application block has attributes that you can put on business classes. So, for example, let's say you have a customer class, or let's actually say order class that has an order number or an order date. You can actually add validators on those different properties to check, for example, if the order date is in within a certain date range or, or, or something like that. So you've got this idea where the validation application block can do the simple types, but also will help you validate complete um, objects and business classes, you know, uh, in your in your business layer. Now you said this is UI neutral. How is it implemented? Because uh, uh, obviously, um, client side and ASP.NET is going to be different than um, stuff that's on your business well, object. Well, typically what's going to happen, for example, is inside your business layer, you're going to want to validate that order class. So what you would do is you would, there's a number of ways you can actually use it, but the very simplest way is using this validation facade class. So what you would do is just say validation.validate and pass the order entity into it. What that validation class does is it looks either at, at looks at attributes on your order class or it looks at information in the configuration file and uses that to actually validate the order object. And if and when it when it does that it returns you some results as to whether yes the order is valid. If it's not, it will send it will return a collection of essentially broken rules that tells you what's wrong with the um, with the order class itself. Now the nice piece about it is there's this hook into the UI, whether it's, um, you know, uh, ASP.NET or WinForms or WPF, where the, in the most interesting piece is probably the ASP.NET, where they have these property proxy validators that you can actually put on your, on your web forms. And let's say that somebody's actually inserting, you know, a new order via web form. What it will do is, rather than having to use ASP.NET validation controls and repeat the rules for what an order class is, the property proxy validator controls will go to the order class in the business layer and look at those rules to validate the input on that web form. So what you're getting away from, which is really nice, is this having to put validation rules both, say, in the business layer, in any layer in your application, Right. You know, and having to synchronize them. So now we get our, our validation rules in one place, and that's on the actual order class itself as attributes, or like I said, in a separate configuration file. Okay. And there's this, this integration exists with ASP.NET, with WinForms, and somebody, uh, somebody in the community actually built, uh, which shows you the extensibility, the WPF integration part. Wow. So I mean, it really really shows you how extensible. The only the only part that most people don't like about the ASP.NET version, okay, and it's and this is its first release, is that it does require a postback. Okay, so it's not exactly the same as the ASP.NET validation controls. Well, unless you're using a custom validator, which uses a postback, and you know, with AJAX and stuff, postback is not necessarily the m- most evil thing anymore. Well, exactly. You can typically, you just wrap it up in an update panel or something if you still yeah. want to maintain that user experience. But I'm guessing what we will probably see is new implementations of that coming down the road that actually maybe emit JavaScript or something to, you know, the web form itself. Okay. There's no reason it couldn't do that. It's just a different engine, really, a different factory, I guess would be the term you'd yeah. use. Well, a lot, well, they, well, they don't have a lot of, you know, they have limited resources just like the rest of us, right? So I think, you know, it, it was probably just a combination of that might have been the easiest to do at the time. It sounds like it's in line with the architecture. I mean, if the business rules are in the object, you got to go get them. You know, you got to right. do a postback. Other, yeah. The uh, other option is to have them repeated in JavaScript on the client. Yeah, propagating them outward isn't necessarily the right answer because right. it just means they're going to get out of sync. Right. Yeah. So, uh, okay, we talked about the validation application block a little bit. How about the logging application block? Well, the logging application block has been something that's been, you know, has been there a while since, you know, version 1.0. Um, 
you know, the, the exciting thing about it, though, is we not only did we get some, uh, you know, some nice WCF integration for, for logging with that, but I think what most people were, were most excited about probably was just that they have this new rolling flat file, you know, trace listener. Because, you know, one of the common things people often wanted to do is just kind of keep a, a daily log file, you know, of what's going on in your application. Yeah. So that's something that, you know, they took a, a stab at this time um, so that people can actually, you know, you know, have that type of functionality. And the same thing with the data access block about, you know, people really wanted to take advantage of system.transactions because we couldn't do that before. Because um, if you use system.transactions with the old version of the data access application block, it always created a distributed transaction, and you typically didn't want to necessarily do that. Sorry, let's just go back for a second to the logging thing and the, okay. the, the what did you call it, the flat file well, this, uh, it's, it's called a rolling flat file trace listener. And what exactly and, um, does that do? You know, which people typically just think is, it's just rolling log file functionality. So, for example, if you're logging messages, say, on August 1st, you know, typically you're going to want to log all of those messages to a file that's timestamped as August 1st. Sort of like IIS. Yeah, well, exactly. When August 2nd comes along, then you're going to want to go ahead and log messages to a new file that's timestamped with the second and, and so on and so forth. I see. And so you have that functionality before. If you wanted to log messages to, say, a flat file in the past or in a, to a file in the past, you typically just had this, what they call the flat file tra- um, trace listener, which means just this file keeps growing and growing and growing, you know, and most people, you know, don't really want that type of, of functionality. Okay. And, uh, you know, honestly, um, you went so fast, I forgot the rest of the new things in 3.0 that you mentioned. So can you uh, pick the next one and we'll dive into that a little bit? Well, I think well, it was something with the data access library. Well, let me let me let me uh, yeah let me back up to we talked about the validation application block, mm-hmm. which is that brand which is one of the brand new application blocks in in 3.0, mm-hmm. and there's the other new application block which is that policy injection application block. Ah, that's the one. Yeah, this is an interesting angle because that whole aspect oriented uh, programming concept, this injection model of development, is very a different style. I did not expect to see that here. I didn't either. This was actually an application block that they didn't show until like the last release candidate. So, you know, they, they typically do enterprise libraries or three or four or five whatever release candidates before releasing it. This is one they didn't show to the very end because they weren't sure if they were going to be able to complete it. So, you know, we didn't get to see this until March. And honestly, for me, it was my first experience with aspect-oriented programming style of development. And the idea here is that, you know, your applications have this combination of, you know, business logic and these cross-cutting concerns that we've been talking about, things like, you know, logging and validation. And, you know, a lot of times they're so intermingled that it's very difficult to maintain applications, you know, with all of that code. So what the policy injection block allows you to do is to take those cross-cutting concerns out, like, say, caching, and instead of putting it in as code, allowing you to declare it, you know, to use more of a declarative-style approach of programming where you can add it to, say, a method as an attribute or add it as a policy in a configuration file. And so Hmm. you still get the same wonderful functionality of, say, caching. It's just that you don't have to look at the code, you know, so to speak, in the body of the method. And what it ends up doing is making, you know, if you're used to the style of development, it makes it very easy to, you know, just maintain and debug code. If you're not new to this, it might actually make it more difficult because you're going to see those attributes or things might be hitting in a configuration file, and you might go, well, what's going on here? It's acting like it's caching, but I don't really see any code. Right. You know, so most of the time when people are first introduced to the style of development, it's always n- typically nice to start out with at least attributes that kind of signal that, hey, there's some caching going on or there's some validation going on. And it's, you know, so it's not, so to speak, just hidden from you in the configuration file. It's kind of like using a Mac, you know? <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah. Did you actually say that? <laughs> Did I say that out loud? <laughs> but, but, it's, but it's 
really, really powerful, and, I, and, and, it's, and it's, it, it challenges the way you think about Enterprise Library now, because you're already excited about the fact that Enterprise Library, you know, dr- dramatically reduces the amount of code that you have to write, you know, typically in an application. Absolutely. And then they take it a step further by just removing those one or two lines that you n- normally had to, you know, to, to code and allow you to pull that out and stick it in a configuration file or as an attribute. And it's just, uh, it's exciting. You know, it, I hope people don't, you know, look at it as a shiny new nail, you know, looking for a hammer kind of a thing. Mm. Um, but, I mean, it really does get you thinking. And, it, you know, it can, if used properly, um, you know, really help the, the maintenance and, and debugging of applications. You know, it's an interesting way to think about, about programming. Uh, it's not the way I think yet. I, I imagine that I will get drawn into aspect-oriented uh, thinking like most people. But uh, but it is interesting, it, a little bit different. Uh, but before we move on, um, there these are the only two new blocks in three O: the validation and policy injection. Right. These are the two. These are the two new ones in addition to you know the six other. I think I believe there's a total of eight now. There are right. six others that have been there since the very beginning. I mean, they have blocks. You know, if you need, if your application needs help with data access, for example, there right. is a data access application block that can help you with that. And for logging, there's a logging application block. So there's, you know, and the nice thing about the application blocks is in general, is you can kind of pick and choose what you need. So sure. if you only need help, you know, in a specific area, you just need to grab that, you know, that particular application block. Have any of them grown up since the last version? I mean, had uh, new features added or are there any... And then backward incompatible gotchas and anything that we need to worry about? No, not not. They're actually pretty good about being backwards compatible and not breaking, you know, the API. They had a little bit of that when they moved from Enterprise Library 1.0 to 2.0, but because this version 3.0 is um, strictly additive, we don't you don't have to worry about anything, any kind of breaking changes. Um, you know, like 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 I've said, the the data access block and the logging block have had some nice you know enhancements to take advantage of of new stuff in the .NET framework. Um, you know, so that's just completely you know stuff that you can just completely use from scratch now. Nothing nothing mm. breaking there. And um, you know, you've got wonderful things that have happened with the configuration tool as well as you know as the, as the new application block software factory. What's happened with the uh, the configuration tool? Yeah. You know, the big thing that most people are going to be excited about is the fact that now the configuration editor is a part of Visual Studio. Okay, so now you still have the option of using the external tool, but you also have a, a Visual Studio integrated version. So that's the first thing that that's really excites people. You know, the second thing is that there's some, you know, nice little functionality in terms of, for example, you know, one of the big things about Enterprise Library that's very configuration rich. Okay, so right. you can pretty much do everything via a conf- either your app.config, a web.config, or any external configuration file. And, but, but one of the challenges to that is when you're working with different configurations in different environments. So you typically in your production environment, you have one configuration, you know, set of settings. And then it may be in test and staging and what have you have different configurations. Well, that was, you know, that gets more and more difficult to manage as you start getting a lot of different configuration settings, you know, in your configuration files. A new feature that they added to the configuration tool is this idea of environmental overrides, which allows you to essentially um, specify settings in your configuration file for different environments. So you can say, you know, in the connection string for this database in the test environment is going to be this. In the staging environment, it's going to be something different. And in the production environment, well, it's even going to be something, again, something different. Now, is this something that you would use the app config file or the web config file for, or is it a separate uh, file altogether? Well, what it does is it is it actually, the internals of it, it actually saves this Delta configuration file, okay? It uses the, the main app.config or web.config as like the, the template, and then there's this Delta file for each environment that specifies the overrides for that environment. Oh, nice. So, so then what you can do then is actually save, when you, when you go to save an environment, what it does is it merges the two 
and create the file specific, you know, to that environment. You can also use that functionality during the build process because there's a console application that you can actually run that will do the same thing for you. So that's, you know, that's typically how I use it, but you can also use, you can also do that merging in the, in the configuration tool itself. So, you know, that's a, that's another big, you know, enhancement for people who are really taking advantage of a lot of the application blocks, you know, and have these fairly large, you know, configuration setups, um, and what that they need to tweak, you know, per environment. All right. Okay. So, uh, what's new in the data access application block? Well, there are a couple of really nice new features in the, in the DAB that really kind of give us this functionality that we've um, got as a part of the .NET 2.0 framework. So when .NET 2.0 came out, uh, one of the big things that we got was this uh, system.transactions namespace, okay? And essentially what, to most developers, what this means is just it's a lot easier to manage transactions in, in your application. So typically people are going to be using this transaction scope class, um, you know, and then that's going right. to provide a wrapper to manage the the transaction. You know, through an entire set of uh, of say database commands or what have you. Mm-hmm. Now, previously in 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 the data access block, the version two point version, it would essentially open a a new connection um, every time you issued a database command. And this was actually a nice thing at the time because it saved you from having to, you know, manage uh, database connections. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, when you start getting into the new system.transactions and use of the transaction scope class, that's a bad thing because when you do that, it'll actually um, create a distributed transaction when in most cases you're usually just firing off commands, you know, to the same database. So right. one of the really nice things that has been added into the data access block is the fact that it honors the transaction scope class. It actually looks to see if there's an open transaction or an active transaction. And if there is, um, it will reuse connections underneath. So this way you don't get local transactions, so to speak, promoted to distributed you know, transactions. Yeah, that's cool. Um, Another thing that they added was this this idea of batch updates. I mean, a lot of times when you're sending a whole bunch of, say, uh, updates to a data set uh, to the database, you know, a lot of times you don't want to send those necessarily one at a time. You'd like to be able to essentially send as many as the database can handle, and this obviously gives you improved per- performance of your data access layer. Well, in the old version of the DAB, they didn't uh, they didn't provide. Um, the ability for you to actually, you know, use batch updates. And now with ah. the, now with the latest version, there's actually new overrides, um, you know, in the update commands that allow you to essentially specify that you act, you know, what the batch size is going to be to the database. So there's some, you know, this nice support for, for the new system done transactions. There's some nice, you know, um, performance um, updates, as well as they actually have a new database provider now for if, you, if you're using SQL Server, you know, CE. So they've actually got a new provider if you're using that as well. And this gets into the piece, pieces that I, I don't really use that provider, but they, I guess the SQL Server uh, Compact Edition doesn't have connection pooling you know, per se. So what they've also done is a- added a, a special um, connection pooling class to help you, you know, with performance around that. Um, ah. So there's a, quite a quite a you know bunch of uh, nice updates to the data access block. That's cool. New York never sleeps, so why should you? Introducing Sleepless in New York, the ultimate SharePoint weekend, September seventh through ninth in New York City. Infusion Development, world-class Wall Street technology consultants and published SharePoint book authors wants to fly you to New York City free for the ultimate training weekend. They'll even put you up at a first-class hotel, though you probably won't see much of it. For two days and nights, you'll live SharePoint and Silverlight with training, collaboration, and even competition. You'll participate in lab-offs which will test your speed and skills, ultimately deciding who moves on to the big mystery game show. The winner will receive Insomniac, the developer's computer that never sleeps. And trust me, it's awesome. You'll also be busy trading ideas with Microsoft MVPs and rubbing shoulders with Richard and me. 
Hey, if knowledge is power, we just offered you the mothership. Think you got what it takes? Apply now at infusion.com slash sleepless in NY. The deadline is Tuesday, August 14th to apply for Sleepless in New York, the ultimate SharePoint weekend, September 7th through 9th in New York City. And, uh, and are there any other access blocks that have had uh, significant updates, caching or cryptography, exception handling? No, I, I, pretty much it's, uh, for the most part, it's been the data access block and the logging block that, that have had the updates. Those are probably the most popular. Um, you know, the other ones, um, there hasn't really been anything added typically in the .NET framework um, where they where it's necessary to provide any value. So they really haven't had to, uh, you know, per se, you know, add anything in there. I'm just trying to think about what should be in the enterprise library versus what's in the .NET framework. Right. And what's really, because it, it, obviously the enterprise library is built on the .NET framework. Why wouldn't this be in the framework in the first place? Well, that's and that's why Enterprise Library came about, because the .NET framework um, either didn't have some functionality or didn't necessarily make it easy um, to use some functionality. So the Enterprise Library in a lot of places is just a bunch of helper classes that make using the .NET framework easier or adding functionality that didn't exist in there. I think it's just closer to your application than the stuff that's in the library. The library is pretty much plumbing, and there are some high-level tools that you would use that you would have had to write before at the application layer, but this is definitely stuff that has to be application-specific, right? I mean, so that, I think that's probably why you're finding it in the in the application blocks. Well, and, but what actually has happened in reality, for example, like let's take the the um, security application block, for example. It used to have a lot more functionality in it than it does today. It used to have this whole membership and roles provider, okay, that used to be in, in that in version 1.0 was in the security application block. When the .NET 2.0 framework came out, it had that functionality. So what actually happened was a security application block lost functionality because the patterns and practices teams, you know, their whole point of this application block is to provide proven practices. And if all of a sudden this functionality is now in the, in the .NET framework, well, that's where they want you to get that functionality. So in the security application block, they actually removed the membership and roles to, to, because you should be using it in the .NET framework. So the and .NET so framework is cre- creeping closer and closer to an application framework <laughs> every day. But that's not a bad no, thing No, not either. necessarily a bad thing at all. So the other side, and it makes sense to me that the enterprise library is the proving ground of those sorts of ideas. Sure. I could even see something like workflow could have gone that way too. I don't know that we actually had a workflow block in the earlier versions of the enterprise library, but obviously now it's part of .NET. Yeah, uh, another one like that. It's got to be the client side stuff with the advent of Acropolis. All right. Oh, oh, absolutely. You're you're absolutely right on that because what happens is is that patterns of you know patterns and practices you know it's kind of like again this like you said this proving ground where they start this and then I think you know the the different development teams at Microsoft see this see this functionality and says boy that should just really be a part of a .NET framework. In fact, that happened. I you know my my guess is this happened with system to, uh, with the configuration application block. There used to be this configuration application block that was in Enterprise Library 1.0, okay, that, that helped, that helped um, you know, basically persist and read settings from a configuration file. Yeah. And, um, you know, then all of a sudden, you know, uh, and so that was, you know, uh, some really great functionality. In 2.0, we saw this, you know, this system.configurations namespace. And, you know, a lot of us, think, you know, that, you know, a lot of this functionality was added to, say, the .NET framework because it was so successful and useful, say, you know, as, as part of the configuration application block. So what happened was, is in 2.0, that configuration application block was then removed, and now Enterprise Library uses system.configuration. So uh, you're absolutely right. I think a lot of that stuff kind of, some of that stuff starts out, um, you know, in the patterns and practices team, and, and you know, in the .NET developer teams at Microsoft see that and say, boy, that's actually a useful addition to the .NET framework. I'm thinking the same is true with that config, with this new, you know, GUI configuration tool 
um, that's a part of Visual Studio now for, for, for Enterprise Library, I could see you know, that ha- that being a part of just Visual Studio itself as opposed to just being an enterprise library, you know, as a tool that ships with enterprise library. And for those of you who uh, did not hear our show with the Acropolis team and want to know what that's all about, rather than taking another five minutes to explain it here, just go listen to the Acropolis show. That was good stuff. And that's uh, show number 248. So, David, what's uh, what's what's the experience like when you're using the enterprise library? It's obviously a library, but it, you, as you said before, you can pick and choose the application blocks you want to use. Is it kind of thing you just download and unzip and then add a reference to the uh, assemblies and then just have at it? Is it that easy? It, it is that easy. I mean, the, the nice thing, and this is um, you know something that I think most people appreciate from you know enterprise library that. I hadn't mentioned was like, it, first of all, it is a free download. So, you know, when, if, if you want to use Enterprise Library, you either go to the CodePlex site that's specific to Enterprise Library, or you can just do a search, and it's a simple download, um, you know, from, from the Microsoft site. The other right. thing that um, I didn't mention was that it also includes source code. So what we've been talking about is just, you know, these reusable helper libraries and, you know, how, how much they reduce the amount of code in your application. The thing is that you also get the source code. So if you feel like you need to customize it or if you're worried, you know, that the patterns and practices group may fold or something, you've got that peace of mind, you know, with the, um, you know, of having the source code. It's also, you know, supported by the patterns and practices team. And it also, like we'd, like we'd mentioned before, it's updated yearly just to take ev- new advantages of the .NET framework as well as any uh, requests out in the developer community as, as to new application blocks or features. So once you actually, you know, de- physically download that, um, you know, onto your PC and install it, uh, typically how you would use it is, you know, look at your application needs and decide where you need help. You know, could I use some help with database access? Do I need some help with logging? And then you, essentially you would just reference the appropriate um, application blocks depending on your need from the application itself. And then once you've referenced that, um, depending on your needs, most of the application blocks, actually all of the application blocks, come with these very simple facade classes, okay, mm-hmm. that make things very, very easy to use. So when it's very simple use of it, you know, you're doing things like, you know, um, database.execute, you know, uh, non-query or execute reader. You, you, you know, you're, you're doing things like validation.validate. So you've got this real nice, consistent user interface, so to speak, across all of the different application blocks. Now, most of, now, what you're probably going to want to do is take advantage of the rich configuration um, um, that's a part of these blocks and set that up. And what's nice about that is each of the application blocks share the same configuration layer. So configuration is also very consistent. And to make things even more easier, you've got that Visual Studio integrated configuration editor, which allows you to do that. So it, it, for even the simplest applications, it's just a matter of referencing the application block configuring it appropriately with the um, GUI configuration tool and then calling the various facade classes of of the different application blocks, okay? But the nice thing about it is that not only does it keep things really simple for those simple situations, but then when you want to go more advanced, when you want to start specifying, you know, exactly where is my configuration or you want to start using your own providers, you know, you start getting into more of the extensibility and, you know, the richness of the configuration that allows you to do that. So it's a very, very simple experience, um, you know. And I think uh, we said it before that, I think we said it before that uh, um, that that there's no support, right? This is an as-is library. You you take it, you use it. If you need support, you don't call Microsoft. Is that right? Well, you, you well no the the it, at the Codeplex where the enterprise library community is, they have a you know just a discussion list or a forum, just like uh, right. you know all the other Codeplex forums. And what I've seen over the last year is that the enterprise library team is actually making a a, a big effort to provide support for enterprise library. So uh, it's not PSS, but it is there is support. Well, out I didn't there. mean there wasn't support. I just mean it's not something you'd use a PSS. Uh, oh, I see. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I don't uh, episode you, four. You, you typically don't wouldn't need to take it that far anywhere. I mean, the community is really so rich, and there's always somebody, typically from the developer team or a community leader that's out there, you know, answering questions in a very timely manner. And one thing that's nice because Enterprise Library has just been around so much. There are just so many tutorials out there that um, sure. it's pretty easy to find, you know, something on how to use the application blocks. Okay. You know, I get a sense that we, we were talking earlier about how 2.0 wasn't a great leap for Enterprise Library because it was most, most of the effort went into implementing against the 2.0 framework, which, I mean, the 2.0 framework was a huge jump. There was incredible things in it and, and they did a lot of work there. So while you didn't get a huge feature list, you did get the benefit of working in the new framework properly, it made it a much better product, which has led to this 3.0 edition where we got some key new features and everything's been improved. Now I'm thinking about 3.5. You know, the, the interesting parallel here is the framework 2.0 jump was a big jump from 1.1 and the 3.0 jump wasn't because it was just these additional classes. The 3.5 jump is a tough one again. We're making some very fundamental changes. And I'm thinking mostly about stuff like link. What is link and validation going to be like? What is the data access block going to look like? These are really core changes to the way these things are going to be done. I got to think that 3.5 is going to be another one of these very tough versions of the library. Yeah, I think you're right. There hasn't there hasn't been anything said, you know, yet obviously on this. Typically around October, November, um you'll start hearing some buzz about um, you know, the enterprise library product manager saying, "Hey, what do you guys want to see in the in the next release?" You're obviously going to see a lot of this feedback on we need, you know, what are you going to do with link and things like that. And so, you know, at the end of the year, um, it's going to be an interesting time frame to see what's actually going to be in that, you know, whatever that enterprise library version 4.0, whatever is going to come out next. Yeah, it's hard to know what that's going to look like. And it's interesting, I haven't talked about it much because they're obviously working in parallel. I look at how quickly uh, the 2.0 came out was January of 2006. I mean, literally within two months of framework 2.0 shipping. Uh, you can't implement generics that fast. You've been working for months on it at that point. They're obviously using Orcus Beta 2 just like we are to try and get their heads around everything that's new and how they're going to implement just the existing feature set against the new framework. Oh, you you know they're thinking about it, but we typically in the, you know, most time in the community, we don't really get the you know, get to hear anything about that until maybe a couple months before, you know, when they start taking you know, input from the community and what they would like to see. And that they're probably at that point, what they're doing is kind of comparing their list that they've already worked out, what they think would be, you know, valuable additions to enterprise library and comparing that to what the community has said. Because, you know, the, the, enter, the patterns and practices team, you know, is, is very, very much customer driven. So even though they may say, wow, these are some really nice stuff that we thought would be cool and would be nice additions, you know, they really, really focus on, you know, what the end user and the customer says. So they definitely have their own list, and at the end of the year, they're going to be comparing that. And my guess is probably like around the December or January time frame, I would assume, since it's, it's typically that same time every year, is when they're going to start working on that and start providing release candidates and things like that. But you're right, it's going to be, it's going to be one of those where they're probably working on a whole bunch of internal things to Enterprise Library itself, you know, as well as trying to balance that with, um, you know, all this new functionality that's in the, the .NET framework and, and what the customers want to see, you know, as an end result. Well, and I struggle with what the extended feature set should be. What would you add? This is really a great suite of the core things that most of my business apps need. Exactly. In fact, I am the wrong person to even try to think of things <laughs> because... When, when, when they were asking for input on 3.0, I, my mind was literally a blank. The only thing I could think of was just, you know, new features to existing blocks and, you know, uh, bugs that I would like to see fixed and things like that. But as far as a new application block, I could not think of it. Any, I couldn't think of anything. And then when they came out with this validation application block, I'm like, why in the heck didn't I think of that? Yeah. You know, when they came out with the policy injection block, I, I, it was the same thing. I was just thinking like, man, you know, I'm glad somebody's, you know, you know, knows what to add to the enterprise layer because I was just kind of perfect, you know, honestly with, for the most part, with just 2.0. But now that I've seen the new application blocks in 3.0, I'm like even more ecstatic. 
And I can't wait to see what they're doing with things like Link, et cetera, you know, in version 4.0. You know, we touched on the web client and smart client software factories, but I don't think we've talked about the web service software factory at all. And to me, that seems much more factory-able than the clients are. What I mean is it, it seems to lend itself, that particular development model, building a web service, mm-hmm. just seems to be the sort of thing that you are as ideal for a software factory. I think clients tend to be a more complex concept, more very personal, the look and feel type things are very challenging for a factory where I think, uh, I mean, really, what is a web service except the kind of extended API? And ah. that's just the kind of thing I'd like to define in a factory. Yeah, yeah I think you're right. I mean, it gets tough because... You know, again, people get into this idea where they have their own approach or their own style or their own standards on how, you know, on how they typically build the clients. And it's very much something that's, you know, um, you really, a lot of times you have to approach from an application to application standpoint, you know. I think, you know, and typically, and, you know, with the web client software factory, which is kind of being built right now and going into a version 2.0, what their focus has been a lot lately is just on that rich user experience because what they're getting from, for example, is from their customers is that, boy, we really need some more help with things like Ajax or whatever and and other things, but I mean, they, they really need help with that. And so, again, it, it, it's very, very customer-driven. The, the Patterns and Practices team and even Enterprise Library really focus on that where they get a bunch of people and just kind of say, you know, what do you need? And I know you're, you're right from the client perspective. It's very, very difficult because you get so many different requests and things, and a lot of times those requests are even contradictory, you know, so <laughs> it, it, you're right. It is, it is a very, the client area is a very tough place to be in terms of, of, of factories. Hey, David, can you tell us a little bit about pnpguidance.net? I'm looking at this, and it looks like an awesome website. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, what I've done, I think I've been, you know, literally blogging since like 2004 or something like that. Actually, even before that, uh, before I actually had the current blog that I have at davidhayden.com. And what I've noticed that I've been doing is just a lot of blogging and a lot of tutorials and, you know, providing a lot of information just on the patterns and practices stuff on, on enterprise library and the various software factories. And, but because I like to blog about so much, I, I was getting worried that I was kind of getting a little bit lost in there and I was starting to get a lot more, you know, questions and you know, and even clients that were very specific to what was going on with the patterns and practices. So I thought the easiest thing to do for at least, you know, people who are interested in this topic was to create just a, a separate a website. And so what I did was I just created pmpguidance.net, which essentially is just enterprise library, you know, software factory, and, and proven practices in general. It's very specific to that. And one of the things I started to, to do, and it's nowhere as professional as your guys' show, but I started doing these, you know, these screencasts, um, which actually I, I think have, have proven to be very valuable, for example. And I've gotten a yeah. lot of positive feedback that show specifically, you know, people, um, you know, about the technical details of the enterprise library and the various software factories as just as more of a, you know, here's how you can use the software factories and things like that. So, you know, I'm still building it, but it's, you know, I'm trying to get it to be just this rich, you know, environment that has a lot of news, a lot of current news of what's going on, a lot of uh, tutorials on how to do things, a lot of sample downloads, you know, screencasts. And then I do a lot of presentations at various code camps, and we've had events like a day of patterns and practices where we just did this whole day of, of what's going on with the patterns and practices area. And so you're going to find a whole bunch of just, you know, presentation slides and things like that. That's yeah, so very cool. There. And the, yeah, I, I agree. The webcasts are, are very valuable. And, you know, quite frankly, it wasn't always viable because not everybody had broadband and, you know, the, the tools, gener- you know, before we had Camtasia so that we could build a flash full screen uh, screencast, you know, it was a very big files that we had <laughs> to generate and didn't really work out all that well. Well, uh, David, we're about at the end of the show. Is there any last minute uh, plug you want to make or, or thing you want to say or? Well, just that, you know, if you, if you definitely are interested in, you know, in enterprise library and the various software factories, you know, just, you know, you can definitely go to my, my personal website at davidhayden.com. I have a blog there that just, you know, has, um, 
you know, various categories that um, are specific to enterprise library and the various software factories. And again, at the PNP um, guidance website, I even have more of that, plus just a a bunch of uh, PowerPoint slides that you can download and screencast, as we talked about before. And of course, you know, you can get, go to all the different various CodePlex sites, um, you know, that, that the Patterns and Practices team runs, and there's some just some very active communities in there. So I just, I, you know, hope people take advantage of that. Very good. David, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and telling us all about what's new in the Enterprise Library and just explaining it in general. Great stuff. Well, thank you, guys. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.